Hello and welcome to the Physical Attraction Book Club, where we'll be discussing again The Divide by Jason Hickel. In the last episode, we talked about how Hickel argues that our current picture of how global inequality will be solved, the ideas of international development and so on, that of uh, economically developed countries giving aid to less economically developed countries, leaves out an awful lot of important context to say the least. We briefly discuss colonialism and the structures of neo-colonialism, including the issue of third world debt, so do go back and listen to that episode if it's been a while since you last heard it. So let's get back into it now. One point that Hickel makes, which comes through the book, is that the third world debt crisis really allowed wealthy nations to do softly, and through these financial agreements, what they had previously done piecemeal through military coups. In Latin America, developmentalism had been pursued by various different governments, and Hickel argues it was working. Life expectancy had gone up from 40 to nearly 60. Even the gap between the rich and poor was shrinking in these countries. But developmentalism, and the growing economic and political power that it provided for the global south, threatened the West's access to their markets, with tariffs and an opposition to free trade designed to help the domestic industries grow. The fact that these domestic industries were growing and becoming more powerful and more able to negotiate was reducing the access that the West had to supplies of cheap raw materials and labour in foreign countries. So this was a big part of the motivation behind many of the coups that were backed by US and European powers. The Cold War helped, as many of the more developmentalist governments could be painted as communists or were explicitly socialist, and therefore were adversarial at the least to the US. This was part of the motivation behind, to name some examples, the coup in Iran against Mossadegh in 1953, the one in Guatemala in 1954, in Brazil in 1962, in Guyana in 1953, in Indonesia in the 1960s, in the Congo in 1960, and in Ghana in 1965, all of which were backed to various extents by the US or European powers, and all of which deposed developmentalist governments, usually in favour of military leaders or right-wing dictators who were much more inclined to open their economies to foreign investment from the West. France was a particular specialist in the so-called Franc Afrique, where there was a lot of continued foreign interference by France in its former colonies in Africa, which generally amounted to picking leaders who were favourable to French interests. It's worth pointing out briefly that this kind of thing is, is clearly going to be worse for the world economy in the long run. It's a bit like the argument surrounding austerity in wealthy countries. From a Keynesian point of view, economically, austerity in the middle of a, of a crisis is, is a disaster. The ideal solution to debt is growth, investing in yourself, so to speak. In economic crises, Keynes urges governments to spend, stimulating demand and boosting growth, which pulls you out of the crisis. Similarly, keeping all of these nations in a state of serious impoverishment prevents their economies from developing and actually doing things more efficiently. So you have a lot of labour, for example, that's being done doing things incredibly inefficiently. It's extremely inefficient if you can't afford to have uh, heavy machines doing the things that people would normally do. All that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's inefficient if you can't adopt these modern techniques which allow you to do things in a much more efficient way, obviously. But the reason that it is done is, is obvious. It allows the West and other rising powers to continue to use these countries as sources of cheap raw materials, cheap labour, and cheap manufacturing. But in the pursuit of short-term profits, the global economy misses out on so much. I mean, think about the number of people who are <laughs> not being productive because they're dying of hunger or malnourishment or anything like that, if you want to look at things in purely economic terms. In analogy with the student, I mean, imagine if that person was willing to allow that student to become a high-priced lawyer rather than demanding their money back immediately. 
Then, once they've done that, they could much more easily and swiftly repay the debt. And of course, from the perspective of international inequality, if you take the point of view that all countries will develop economically along similar lines, remember what we talked about, the the procedure that was uh, kind of implied by Truman's speech, where we have less economically developed countries and economically developed countries, and uh, these developed nations have developed in a certain way. Well, can the less economically developed nations develop in that same way if they're subject to continued interference and continued imposition of unfair terms of economic relations from the more developed countries? No, no, no. The ladder has effectively been pulled up behind them um, and exerting what power and influence you can as, uh, as the wealthier nations to keep these countries as places where you can extract cheap natural resources and labour from rather than allowing them to grow into substantially wealthier nations who might become your economic competitors. That, obviously, is partly why all of this is being done. One solution to a lot of this could be debt amnesty, and there's plenty of precedent throughout history. Some economic systems in history, for example, have had an agreement that debts would be cancelled once you had repaid, for example, twice or three times the original size of the loan due to interest so that you can't have a debt that just spirals out to infinity. As David Graeber describes in his book, Debt the First 5,000 Years, societies have often had debt jubilees. I think the historical parallel here is instructive, so I'll, I'll sort of describe how these debt jubilees used to happen. In, in these old agrarian societies, as in so many throughout history, prosperity often depended on the weather. Occasionally there would be floods, storms, a terrible harvest. Many small farmers would go into debt to the rich noblemen, just in order to survive through that terrible harvest. But the surplus on next year's harvest would hardly be enough to compensate for the debts racked up to afford food in the midst of a ruined one, let alone the interest on those debts that had to be paid. After a while, once interest had accrued, the noblemen would then demand return on their investment, which could cause an economic crisis. Farmers could not afford seed to plant in the next year. Some, to try and repay these debts, would be forced to sell their wives and children into bondage. Others would simply flee the kingdom entirely to escape their creditors. Now, the result of this huge debt crisis that you would have in these ancient societies, if allowed to go unchecked, would obviously be total economic disaster. I mean, you can't have everyone fleeing and no one being able to farm the land. So the king, who after all had the divine right to do so, would simply perhaps settle up with the nobles, compensate them by some amount, and then cancel all of the debts in a jubilee. There's clearly a parallel with these debts incurred by third world countries during the oil crisis of the 1970s. Again, these are debts sold to people during a crisis, and now they're distorting massively the global economic system. And indeed, one might even argue that the same case should apply for private indebtedness within countries. There was an article written recently which was arguing for an American debt jubilee, Something like these student loan repayments where people pay down the entire capital of the loan and still owe much more thanks to compound interest. The reason for cancelling these debts on behalf of the king and the powers that be, it's not out of kindness, it's to prevent an economic crisis. The fact that the farmers were fleeing the territory or being sold into slavery to pay debts meant that the agrarian economy could no longer function. You can't have nobles unless you have farmers underneath them. The fact that third world governments cannot invest in education or healthcare because they're forced to spend so much money paying off the interest on foreign debts is holding back the global economy. Think, if you must think in purely monetary terms and not in moral terms at all, of the value that could be gained by each additional dollar that Sri Lanka gets to spend on education or healthcare 
relative to each additional dollar that accrues on some bank's balance sheet, specifically from collecting third world debt, versus, say, their standard financial speculations in other markets. And perhaps the fact that so many people are forced to spend large fractions of disposable income on student loan repayments will prevent them from forming the thriving middle class that is the backbone of a modern economy. There are parallels in all of these situations where you can argue that there is a debt jubilee purpose that isn't just because it's the morally right thing to do, but also to prevent a much bigger crisis of indebtedness. There is a part of us that thinks it is in some way wrong or weird to cancel a debt, but you have to weigh up the moral claims here. Here we have the bank that's claiming it has a right to collect interest on the dodgy loan it made decades ago, when much has already been repaid, and when it was clearly made under awful circumstances. The citizen of an African nation, where the government spends 10% of its revenue on debt repayment, argues that they are suffering and losing out due to loans which they never saw the benefit from, often due to corruption, which may in some cases have been paid back several times over. Your King Solomon, who has the better moral claim here? Indeed, jubilees have occurred in the past for some of these debts. $117 billion worth of debt has been cancelled in the years up to 2010, in part thanks to the efforts of the Jubilee debt campaign. But billions upon billions are still outstanding and still being paid, and in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, unfortunately, we're seeing more debts racking up. Debt is only part of the larger financial story that Hickel is telling here. Other issues arise from other types of capital flow. Foreign investment makes profits which are then taken out of the country. Consider, for example, Dutch Shell taking its profits from Nigeria's oil reserves, money which leaves the country and ends up largely in Europe and the US. This can amount to $500 billion a year, flowing from developing countries to developed countries, in terms of the profit that the foreign owners of their natural resource mines and so on are expatriating from the country. This is a sort of capital flight, basically. And again, capital controls are part of the policies that were destroyed by the SAPs because they would prevent this sort of thing from happening. Developing countries pay $60 billion a year under the World Trade Organization's Agreement on Intellectual Property Rights for using patented medicines or seeds or other technologies which are vital to development and public health. And again, predominantly, this is flowing from developing countries to developed countries. And capital flight is a big problem. Money leaving developing countries for the developed world. Another huge problem is something called trade misinvoicing. So this is corporations listing false prices on their trade invoices to siphon money away from developing countries and into tax havens. You end up with a gap between what one country reports as its trade inflows and what another reports as its outflows, because people have overstated the value of their exports or they've understated the value of their imports. And this is really difficult because you might think that somewhere there's some accountant with a massive ledger who's making sure that all of the values of the things that are exported and all of the values of the things that are imported add up. But there simply isn't. Less than 2% of cargo ships that flow around are actually checked, and it's very difficult to know what constitutes a fair price because obviously this is uh, debatable, isn't it? You could end up overpaying for something or underpaying for something depending on who benefits from that. According to the Global Financial Integrity Think Tank, which regularly compiles reports on this, this gap due to trade misinvoicing, listing these false prices, could be as much as $817 billion in 2017 alone. The problem here is that this illicit money, this money that's not really balanced on either side of the balance sheet when a trade is done between countries, it's not reported. 
and therefore it can't be properly taxed or subject to controls on the movement of money away from countries. So for example, let's say you wanted to get loads and loads of money out of a developing country. You would simply say that your exports were worth a lot less than they actually were, so that there was no control on the capital flight. And then when the import comes in, you register it as being worth more than it is. This means that the governments of developing countries responsible for education and public health, they have no opportunity to benefit from many of the raw materials, foodstuffs and goods that they're exporting. Because as far as the governments and their policies are concerned, they're actually exporting stuff that's worth less than it's being sold at at the other end, if that makes sense. Another major issue in financial terms is so-called transfer mispricing. One thing that's quite important to remember is that perhaps a third of world trade takes place not between corporations in different countries, but actually within them. Corporations buying and selling goods within their own corporate structure. So, for example, if you've got a part of your business in Luxembourg and part of your business in the US and part of your business in Saudi Arabia or whatever, you're trading between different subsidiaries of your own company. And that's around a third of world trade. What can then happen is that corporations simply record ridiculous prices for a given good or service. They can then often use this to transfer funds to jurisdictions with lower tax. Particularly egregious examples that have been recorded over the years include, for example, one part of a company buying a toilet roll from another part for thousands of dollars in order to do this. This is a problem in the wealthy world too. In 2017, there was a substantial court case brought against Amazon by the IRS in the US. The IRS argued that Amazon had mispriced goods and services that it had transferred to its businesses in Luxembourg, a notorious tax haven. Correcting this mispricing, according to the IRS, would have increased Amazon's taxable income by over a billion dollars. In the end, they lost the case. But in developing countries, the tax authorities don't have any opportunity to try and combat a lot of this mispricing. In many ways, the tax authorities are kind of intentionally left a bit toothless in these countries. When we look at how many of the regulators in our own Western economies are similarly toothless to deal with illicit financial flows and illicit wheeling and dealing and so on, then you can see why it's going to be even worse in a country with a government that has much less control over what's going on. The result is that billions of dollars of income that should be taxed, but can't, is being flowing out of poor nations every year due to this sort of balance sheet trickery. Perhaps as much of a trillion dollars a year flows out of poorer nations without any hope of taxing it properly by such methods, again according to the Global Financial Integrity Report. These kind of breaches and frauds are, of course, supposed to be detected by the customs officials that handle exports and imports for each country. But in the name of free trade, and not impeding free trade, many of the nations that have been hit by things like structural adjustment programmes have very lax customs officials. In other jurisdictions, of course, corruption is a major problem. If it's much, much cheaper to bribe a few officials in a place where the governing and legal system is generally weak, then you're, you're going to do that because it's a far, far cheaper alternative than anything else. I remember listening to uh, Laurie Taylor on the Thinking Aloud podcast. Uh, there's a show on the BBC which does all sorts of anthropology. And he was talking about the owners of mega yachts. And uh, on, on these mega yachts, they have people who specifically uh, have Rolex watches and Gucci handbags and Prada stuff and all, you know, designer clothes and uh, other material goods. And they keep these with them at all times. 
Um, and the reason they do is because they can use them to bribe officials at various different ports so that you can come and dock at any time you want, so that you don't have to pay any fees associated with docking there, all that sort of thing. And th- this is sort of built into the system, this, this level of bribery and corruption in many places around the world. The real point that stuck out to me about this is how little we discuss it and how little any of this is raised as a general issue. Before I had read this book, I hadn't even heard of trade misinvoicing or transfer mispricing, and I like to imagine that I do pay some attention to what's going on in the world. But no one ever discusses these things. They are intentionally made dull, obfuscated in accounting trickery and complexity, buried in legal disputes about the best definitions and the best methods of accounting for this kind of thing, and then buried far from the public agenda. I looked around for discussions of these issues, even just to see if there was a counterbalancing point of view to the Global Financial Integrity Institute's arguments. But they are few and far between. If you see them, do send them to me, because I want to read more about this, I want to learn more. But it it strikes me just so clearly that the best way to get away with crimes to make it boring. Even if you don't care about global inequality, this kind of thing should still be a massive concern. Tax evasion more generally. As I originally wrote the script, my own country was embroiled in some ridiculous stirred-up controversy about whether the lyrics to some particular patriotic song are going to be sung on TV this year. Whenever I see some controversy like this stirred up, I question who it is that wants me to be thinking about this, and what it is that they don't want me to be thinking about instead. If the question really is that of patriotism, how patriotic is it to dump all of your profits in a tax haven, starving public services that we all depend on for funding, while everyone else's tax bills remain high? Even if you're listening to this as a libertarian, sick of my bleeding-heart ramblings about inequality, and happy with a global system defined by dog-eat-dog raw economic power, rather than principles of justice, then you should still be pissed off that wealthy people and corporations can effectively dodge the taxes that you're still compelled to pay. You might resent having to pay taxes at all, but surely if you do have to pay them, it's worse that you aren't even getting what you pay for due to people not contributing their fair share. There are various estimates to how much tax evasion costs the UK, for example, but none of them are less than tens of billions a year. It seems to me, then, that there could be a genuine consensus across ordinary citizens on the left and the right that cracking down on tax evasion and illicit financial flows would be a good thing to do. This is effectively what our government should be there for, to prevent people who have access to a great deal more money from exploiting the system over the interests of the ordinary people who get a vote just like everyone else. We would then only disagree on whether to use the profits from clamping down on evasion to lower everyone's taxes or invest in public goods and services. But instead, it's almost as if there is a group of people who would rather we were at each other's throats about the culture war issue of the day. Statues, anthems, curriculums, comedians, pronouns, rather than the things that materially affect all of our lives. But that's another story. So returning to the initial point of growing global inequality and our persistent failure to eradicate global poverty, global hunger, disease and malnutrition, and the gaps between rich and poor nations, you can see where we're going here. Foreign aid and charity are not permanent solutions while you're effectively extracting more from poor countries than you're giving to them. Economic growth is not necessarily a solution because countries are often being prevented from developing by this chain of debt, economic dependency, unfair balance of trade, corruption and occasional coups. 
This is not even something that's entirely been abandoned. See Bolivia, for example, where another left-wing government, that of Evo Morales, was deposed in a coup with support from the US. And apparently also Elon Musk, who tweeted in response to a comment on this, we're the United States, we'll coup whoever we want. Meanwhile, economic growth alone, and a kind of trickle-down approach to the wealth of relative nations, is also unlikely to work, according to Hickel. The reason for this is quite simple. As we've been discussing, the proceeds of global growth are not evenly distributed. The poorest 60% of the world receive just 5% of the proceeds from global economic growth. Given this distribution of global growth at the moment, it would take a century of uninterrupted, robust global economic growth at 3 or 4% a year to lift the world, the entire world, above the $1.25 a day poverty line. At a more realistic poverty line of $5 a day, it would take over 200 years to eliminate poverty purely through economic growth, according to economist David Woodward. So, quite simply, if you're going to say that business as usual is doing a perfectly fine job at producing economic growth, and that there's no issue with the way in which the proceeds of this growth are being distributed at the moment, then you're willing to accept that it will take centuries of this kind of growth, unfettered by economic crises, to alleviate poverty. Of course, this model, where we just extrapolate present levels of inequality in wealth distribution and economic growth, is naive. Perhaps the wealth distribution of future economic growth will change. Perhaps it will be possible to solve more problems with less wealth due to things like improvements in technology. But, of course, there are other ways in which it's naive, which I think should be more of a concern for people who are blithely saying that all we need to do is continue to grow the economy so that uh, less wealthy countries can grow themselves out of poverty. Because we have economic crises that can slow down or reverse growth, as we're seeing right now. And of course, growth at some point has its limits. Under the present promise that economic growth alone should alleviate poverty for the world, Woodward calculates that the economy would have to grow to 175 times its present size before poverty at $5 a day would be eliminated. For a sense of perspective, that's the same amount that the global economy grew between 1700 and today. And for that to happen, it took three centuries, globalisation, the harnessing of fossil fuels, the invention of the engine and the computer, and so on and so on and so on and so on. We don't even know if it's feasible for the economy to grow by another 175 times. And therefore, inevitably, if you don't think that can happen, there needs to be some level of redistribution or more equitable distribution of growth that happens in the future. That's just simple common sense. Now, if you want a sense of how unequal this fantasy world would be, in this world, average per capita income, so average income per head, would be $1.3 million. In other words, on average, in a world this unequal, we'd have an average income of over a million dollars per person just to ensure that the poorest person could get $5 a day. But of course, the real problem with all this is that it's not even clear that running the world's economy at its present size is sustainable for all that long. It's difficult to calculate precisely how quickly we are using up various resources and to know how long we can sustain our impact on the Earth's biosphere in terms of, for example, the footprint that our agriculture has. But there are signs that we are putting serious pressure on natural systems. We have, of course, covered this before. It's the limits to growth argument that has been articulated for many decades by people. We talked about it in the Teotihuacan specials on the climate crisis and e ecological catastrophe. 
At the very, very least, you have to accept that we need a huge overhaul in the way that we look at economic growth at the moment, making it far less intensive on the use of raw materials and far less environmentally destructive than it is at the moment, for us to be in with a prayer at keeping the party going for that long. There are many scholars who will point to different limits to growth, and the idea that limitless economic growth on a finite planet is, of course, unsustainable. Even David Attenborough said that anyone who thinks infinite growth on a finite planet is possible is either a madman or an economist. Now, that whole argument is really for another episode, but I, I think it's, it's clear to say that if your plan A involves growing the economy by 175 times, then the onus is really on you to explain how we can do that. Now, I think that Hickel does slightly elide the point here where he implies that an economy 175 times bigger has to consume 175 times more stuff or emit 175 times as much CO2. That's clearly untrue. You can have the economies that allow us to consume less, technologies that allow us to do that. There's enough energy shining in the form of sun on the world's deserts to provide 175 times our current energy use easily. So this raw input is not a bar. Although, of course, at the moment, we're only getting a a small portion of our energy from solar power directly. But in some ways, it doesn't matter. I mean, even if we're emitting three times as much CO2 in the future, that's too much. The way things are going, I think it's easy to say that, unless there are major changes to how we run the global economy, what we prioritise, and how we treat the natural environment and raw materials. It is simply not going to be possible to grow the economy by a factor of 175 to lift everyone out of poverty. We have not yet decoupled economic growth from CO2 emissions. Every time the economy grows, so does CO2 emissions. Let alone have we decoupled it from the consumption of finite material resources. The decoupling of economic growth from CO2 emissions is really a very long way from complete. And given that many people would argue we cannot actually afford to grow our material impact on the Earth, in terms of emissions of pollutants and consumption of natural resources at all from where we are at the moment, or even sustain that impact at the current level, then it's clear that even if growing the global economy by 175 times only requires us to grow our material footprint or emissions by a factor of 10, it's still way too much. So trying to grow our way out of poverty now, as seems to be the suggested remedy, could cause catastrophic environmental, ecological and climate disasters. And in the near term, those pushing for global growth at all costs, even the environment, and saying that poverty alleviation is the reason to do that. They're effectively ignoring the fact that most of the negative consequences of that growth, the environmental destruction, the so-called externalities of it, fall again on the poorest people in the world. It's effectively irrelevant if global economic growth has supposedly boosted your income by a dollar a day, if you can no longer grow food on the land you used to work, which is now flooded, or exposed to unbearable extreme heat in a climate-changed future. Incidentally, this is of course part of the problem that models that try and integrate climate and economics have always had. They will often say things like, for example, the damage due to climate change will only be 5% of global GDP in a worst-case scenario or something. The problem is <laughs> fungibility, yet again. This metric of GDP assumes that all the different numbers of GDP are completely fungible with each other, as in you can exchange them and trade them happily. That's obviously not true. If the 5% of GDP that you've wiped out is agriculture, it doesn't matter if you have twice as many lawyers account accounting for twice as big a sector of GDP, if you see what I mean, because you kind of need that food, regardless of what your job is. So you can see that th these arguments about raw economic growth as being the only thing that matters 
when actually what we're talking about is the carrying capacity of the Earth, the ability of our planet to provide us with all of the things that we need to survive and, God forbid, to live happy lives. It becomes important that limitless economic growth is not the only thing that we can possibly rely on to alleviate poverty, to alleviate suffering. So the idea that this limitless economic growth on a finite planet will provide the solution to poverty may well also prove to be a mirage. Unless we can find some way to grow sustainably and limit the environmental destruction, resource depletion and greenhouse gas emissions that have accompanied growth since the very beginning. And of course, this then makes you question what the alternative might be. If you have a choice between growing the economy by a factor of 175, notionally so that the poorest are no longer in poverty, or a more equitable distribution of today's wealth that would accomplish something similar, why would you advocate for the first one? I'm reminded of Christian Riley in our episode on MMT, comparing it to filling up the bathtub in the upstairs flat, in the hope that their flat will entirely flood and then eventually some of the water will trickle into your bathtub, rather than just turning on your own taps. So, all in all, the story that Hickel narrates about global inequality and poverty is a grim one. It begins with colonialism, that vast theft for wealth which turns slight economic and technological gaps between countries into yawning chasms. And, through neo-colonialism, coups, third world debt, illicit financial and economic machinery, corruption and exploitation, the transfer of wealth from poor countries to rich countries hasn't finished, but has actually continued, despite what you may think from the narrative of charity and foreign aid. And that this continued for many decades after colonialism had ended, and arguably still continues to this day. In this narrative, in this world then, charity and foreign aid provide little permanent solution. When they don't come with strings attached, they are still dwarfed by the flows of money in the opposite direction, in debt repayments and unfair transactions. And economic growth, although it has been important in countries that have been less under the influence of other extractive powers, like China, is not a clear solution to poverty either. At present levels of inequality, it will take centuries of pure growth, an economy much larger than today, for this to lift the world's population out of poverty. And if we sustain our current levels of inequality, we would have that absurd world where, on average, people are earning $1.3 million a year, and yet the poorest are only earning about $1,500 a year. With the present, extractive nature of the economic system, this economic growth that would alleviate poverty would occur at the cost of massive environmental destruction and degradation, which would, at best, cancel out many of the gains, and, at worst, send the whole system crashing to the ground, an overshoot of the carrying capacity of the earth, as people like to talk about it. In this sense, the depressing conclusion is that, frankly, without fundamental changes, solutions to the problem of global inequality simply won't work. Now, when it comes to actually assessing this book with somewhat of a critical eye, it's worth pointing out the obvious. Hickel has written a polemic here. He is in favour of substantial changes to these institutions of foreign debt and the IMF and the World Bank and much harsher regulations of trade and illicit capital flows and so on. And it is therefore in his interest to downplay or explain away successes that have been achieved or alternative visions for the future where we maybe do manage to naturally shift the proceeds of growth around more equitably. It's also true that, given that this is a history of the global economy condensed into a few hundred pages, and from a specific viewpoint to back up a specific thesis, there are obvious elisions and omissions that get made. Everything is sourced to economic studies, but they're clearly being chosen for the eye-catching figures involved, 
and I'm not qualified enough to go through and unpick the methodology and determine whether the arguments made in each case are really all that valid, and what assumptions are made in coming to each conclusion. At the same time, I've been in academia long enough to know that, especially in the social sciences, you can usually find studies that highlight the specific issue that you want to talk about in one way or another. That said, Hickel also exposes the way that this has been done on the other side of his argument. To create narratives that everything is fine in the quest to reduce poverty and hunger, which are also disingenuous. So there's always a grain of salt to be taken with any eye-catching statistic about something as huge and complex as global poverty and the global economic and financial system. But for me at least, even with those caveats in place, it doesn't detract from the broader arguments that are being made, which are pretty unimpeachable I think, and rely on data from many different sources. One of the more objectionable parts of the book is to say that the aid narrative is damaging, and that large charities are essentially just serving as cover for more systemic problems. You can see why Hickel wants to say that charity and foreign aid is not enough to solve the problem. Patently it is not, as it has not solved the problem in the last 70-80 years, when the problem is eminently solvable given the tools that we have at the moment. But this can often come too close to seeming to say that it is useless, or even just a fig leaf for a global system that remains exploitative. I think that is unfair. I think plenty of people engaged in charity and charitable donations do make real and important differences and have helped to alleviate poverty and suffering in the world. A world without charities where we continue to just insist on debt payments and unfair exchange would probably be even more of a hellscape. I think the book often comes a bit too close to saying that charity is pointless simply because the problem is currently bigger than our charitable efforts, which is certainly another flaw albeit it is rooted in the author's personal experience and frustrations. And I think that this feeds into another slightly more broad criticism, where you're painting a narrative with unambiguous winners and losers, and therefore unambiguous good guys and bad guys. I've read critiques of the book that say, for example, that it paints the IMF and the World Bank as nefarious, when it's possible that they're more guilty of mismanaging a complex situation, or maybe even being economic ideologues who genuinely believed that liberalising trade and opening up economies would benefit poor countries in the long run. I'm sure that others would say that Hickel glosses over some of the sins and corruption of the regimes that were deposed in the 1950s, and overstates the role of US intervention in these politics. The individual cases aren't treated in that much depth, so nuances in what happened in each case are inevitably being glossed over. That, I think, is also fair to say. But what I would say is this. Does Hickel occasionally oversimplify things, paint large regions with the same brush, and ignore points of evidence that don't fit his narrative, which is, by necessity, a fairly simple one? Of course he does. But the standard narrative that we are told about global inequality and poverty, if we think about these issues at all, is probably even more wrong. Perhaps a good exercise, if you've listened to this and find yourself disagreeing, is to read the book alongside something like The Better Angels of Our Natures by Steven Pinker, although I'd rather you read Factfulness, Ten Reasons Why Things Are Better Than You Think, by Hans Roslow. These are two books which attempt to take a much more optimistic perspective on humanity's attempts to achieve goals like poverty reduction and elimination of world hunger. Then you can make judgments for yourself, you can balance the two extreme perspectives in your mind, if you like, and, and, and think to yourself, which of these perspectives does a better job of explaining the way things are, and accounting for the historical facts? and which provides a more realistic vision for the future. And if you want to discuss the comparison with me, I'd be more than happy to get your messages, and maybe even make this into part of the book club, that everyone reads the book and comes to their own take on it. A sort of audience interaction, if you like. I'd be happy to read out people's reviews if they want to send them over.
But to my mind, the simple optimistic narrative, I think it's even more oversimplified. The sort of notion that Pinker and others have liked to sell, where the world is just one continuous movement towards growth, happiness and progress, and that the way things are run at the moment have no injustice in them. I think it's a complacent narrative. This standard narrative doesn't engage with the past. There's no discussion of how it is that countries came to be poor. It doesn't engage with the present. There's no discussion of how economic growth as it occurs at the moment is unfairly distributed, how foreign aid is outstripped by debt repayments, and so on. And it doesn't engage with the future, whether it will be sustainable to simply grow the economy with no redistribution or rebalancing, so that the world can be lifted out of poverty on a finite planet. If you have any concept of the future at all, it will probably just be, oh, technology will solve everything in a way that's very vague. Where these issues are engaged with, then, history is erased or explained away as all in the past now. The present is not perfect, but better than history, right? And the future is a technology-enabled utopia, where everything is so brilliant that poverty simply melts away. That may yet come to pass, and I am very in favour of everyone who is trying to develop technologies that will help that happen. But it's quite an assumption that we can just carry on the way we're going, and that it will happen. And I am also firmly of the view that we shouldn't allow ourselves to be satisfied with just some progress, when evidently so much more is possible. I'm basically a frustrated optimist here. In the last few hundred years, humanity has made some really extraordinary achievements. This is the period of history that we're calling the Great Acceleration. We've we've taken off. Yes, technological development and the establishment of a globalised economic system with trade across all parts of the world... These things have produced tremendous amounts of wealth. We've harnessed huge amounts of energy stored in the form of fossil fuels and lately renewables as well. We've created amazing technologies that can extend our life expectancy from a paltry 25 to well over 80 in developed nations. We can travel into space. We can harness energy from the sun. And I can communicate with all of you, people mostly I will never meet from all over the world, with a little plastic box in my room which lets me broadcast these rants to you. We have done some really genuinely amazing stuff. Why then should we settle for a system that doesn't let at least some of the fruits of this extraordinary progress go to billions of people who remain in abject poverty? People will say that some inequality is inevitable, even a desirable prerequisite for economic growth, or for society to function, or whatever you might want to have. That may well be true from a sort of but-life-is-unfair perspective. But no one is ever willing to defend precisely this level of inequality. No one is ever willing to say, sorry, things have to be exactly this unequal, or we simply won't get any of the benefits that we've experienced for the last few centuries. People aren't willing to say, for example, that if we were only to go back to the levels of inequality, say domestically in the US that existed in the 1950s, this would be some terrible system that couldn't possibly exist. People aren't willing to say that you simply have to let multinational corporations get away with tax evasion, that you have to extract huge fractions of GDP from poor nations in the form of debt repayment, or else we can't have nice things. People people don't say that. People don't defend the specifics, the current levels of inequality that exist, either within society or between nations. And the reason they don't do that is because that position is indefensible. So instead, they point to what progress we have made, and not the progress that we could have made. And I think that's just disingenuous. Instead, if people do want to try and defend global inequality, as it exists today, they will usually make the case that we have two alternatives. 
allowing everything to proceed exactly as it is at the moment, perhaps with a few incremental tweaks around the edges, or violent global communist revolution which doesn't work. This point of view, to my mind, shows a distinct and rather depressing lack of imagination, and a lack of willingness to engage with the substantive detail of the problem. Is it really beyond the wit and capacity of humanity to solve these problems more quickly, in a less destructive way? Is it really the case that there is absolutely no way we could have better enforcement systems for things like tax evasion and trade misinvoicing? Is it not more likely that the reason we don't have these systems is because the people who benefit from them have a disproportionate influence over the legislatures of countries? The optimists, optimistic about our potential, must surely say that of course we can do these things if we want to. So why then present this narrative where everything is perfect and there's no need to make any major changes to the world, where all you need to do is be optimistic about how well you're doing and not about where you could be? And if it's possible to make these positive changes, why are we not doing it? We know that we produce enough food to feed 9 billion people comfortably. Why then are we happy with a system that allows hunger and malnutrition to continue? This really shouldn't be all that radical. It's not the same as saying that everyone should have the same amount of wealth, regardless of their personal merits, fortune or hard work. It is simply saying that people should not have to struggle to survive when it's not necessary. That malnourishment, by the way, obviously means that millions of people around the world will be permanently stunted and won't be productive workers. So if what you're concerned about is a maximally productive economy, you could make more money in the long run by ensuring everyone's well-fed. If your only measurement for what's worth valuing in the world is what's valuable to the economy. If having a conscience and being aware of these issues allows us to only slightly rebalance the way things are done now, it will still be worthwhile. So yes, Hickel's work is a polemic that leaves stuff out, downplays the progress that has been made in places, and you certainly have to take parts of it with a grain of salt. But I think as a counterbalancing point of view to the predominant narrative, and frankly a lot of things that we simply hardly ever discuss, it's worth reading despite that, albeit with the critical eye. When you do read it, though, you can understand why that narrative, the optimism industry as it has been called by citations needed amongst others, is so popular. Because looking at the world through this lens is depressing, in the extreme. The final criticism I would make is the obvious one, although maybe it's a larger issue than that. Like many books of its type, the divide is far, far better at illustrating the history, the scale, and the nature of the problem than it is at suggesting practical solutions. There is a solutions chapter at the end of the book, but it's fairly thin on the ground in terms of detail. There are obvious things that would help in the situation. Cancelling the third world debt via campaigns like the Jubilee campaign would be a start particularly as, even in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, the debt repayments that are being extracted are at record levels. Governments have suspended only part of the debts due to be paid according to the G20 and Jubilee debt campaigns, and private and multilateral creditors, the banks and so on, have not agreed to suspend any of the debts during the crisis. These impoverished countries are set to pay down 14.3% of their tax revenue on repaying debt on average in the 2020, much of it accrued after the global financial crisis, compared to 6.7% in 2010. Clamping down on these illicit financial flows would help. Taking action against tax havens would help. Addressing climate change, which, as we talked about on this show before, will constitute a massive transfer of wealth from the rich to the poor, because the impacts are disproportionately visited upon the poor. Alongside, of course, a massive intergenerational transfer of wealth, because the impacts are disproportionately visited on the young. These things will also help. 
Of course, it is difficult, though, because when you approach the world from a viewpoint like that espoused in Hickel's book, much of world history arises because powerful interests have exerted their power to maintain their own power, wealth, and influence. So the idea that they will suddenly have a change of heart and give it all up is naive. Similarly, trying to overthrow those interests by revolution produces its own, often massive, problems and internal contradictions, as anyone who has ever read other histories of the 20th century can tell you. To me, this seems just as unrealistic a solution as relying on everyone to suddenly have a change of heart, and one that's far more likely to lead down the path of death and destruction. If we decide to ourselves that we cannot possibly resolve the issues of massive global inequality without a global revolution that topples everything, then we will be waiting forever for that to happen. Some hope that climate change or environmental catastrophe will eventually prove to be bad enough to galvanise the world into a new way of thinking. That could still be possible. There are inspirational activists of all ages and dispositions who recognise that things need to change to address this problem. But at the same time, when crises hit, we more often see those in charge exploiting them to consolidate power. The oil crisis in the 1970s, a global economic shock that resulted in many of the debts piling up that have been used as an instrument of financial and economic leverage ever since, is a prime example illustrated in the book. But it goes back to, for example, Britain continuing to export grain from Ireland during the Great Potato Famine. Even now, in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis and the global economic fallout, the net effect is increasing inequality, both within nations and between them. In light of all this, then, it is understandable why we so often prefer to believe and listen to narratives of progress and optimism, if we think about these issues at all. Because actually, the alternative, acknowledging the vast unfairness of it all, can seem to be so much worse. Seeing it all laid out, as Hickel does here, in rather grim detail, can feel like just a lot of negative information that we can't do anything about. And so we come back to another endless debate, between optimistic spins and pessimistic spins on negative information, and which ones spur more action to solve problems, which is familiar to anyone who has been engaged on the debate on climate change and how to respond to that. We are implored to look to our democratic institutions to raise awareness of injustice and to keep the pressure on in the ways that we can talk about these issues. That is the only option that we have. But when, for example, the British public is still divided on deciding whether colonialism was something to be proud of or not, and when most of them think that we spend too much on foreign aid already, it seems unlikely that they will suddenly turn on post-colonialism in any meaningful way anytime soon. Which means that those of us who care about these issues, and when I say these issues, that is a dispassionate way of saying the fact that millions still lead lives filled with grinding misery, poverty and suffering that is totally unnecessary in this day and age. Those of us who care about that still have an awful lot of work and persuading left to do. We have a lot to teach and a lot to learn. But the pessimism that we can feel when we see how these problems still exist, we should counterbalance that with a great deal of optimism that now, perhaps for the first time in human history, we actually have the ability to erase poverty, hunger, malnutrition, and all of these global problems from existence. We can do it, we have the ability to coordinate, we have the technology, we have the scientific understanding to do the things that were impossible for most of human history. It won't be easy, but as has been said before, the future is here, it's just not very evenly distributed. 
The divide, however, is certainly a good introduction to some of the historical factors that explain this unfair distribution. I learned a lot from it. If people read it and agree or disagree, I'd love to hear about it. You can get in touch with us via the website, physicspodcast.com, where there's a contact form that goes to my email. I try to respond to as many of those emails as I get. You can find us on Twitter, at PhysicsPod. You can find us on Facebook, at Physical Attraction. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider donating to the show. You can do so via links on the Physics Podcast website. You can subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash physicalattraction, and support your local, (laughs) or not so local, independent podcast producer. There, of course, you'll get access to plenty of bonus episodes that we've produced over the years, um, alongside forthcoming episodes that have not yet been released. And that is one way you can support the show. Of course, another way, if you think that what we're talking about is important or interesting, is to tell as many other people as you know to listen to the show as you can. Uh, Every little helps to get our name out there and to get people listening and engaging with these issues and discussing them. And please do, you know, if you have comments, questions, concerns, please send them into that contact form. And I will hopefully do uh, some follow-up episodes on these episodes where we will discuss some of the questions that have been sent in, as we have done in the past. Okay, my voice is running out, so I'm going to bid you adieu. But until next time, then, please do take care.